Greetings, Sassnack Files universe. This is Chelsea, and today on the Sassnack Files, we're going to be talking about episode 203 of Outlander, Useful Occupations and Deceptions. But before we get into the episode analysis, I want to remind you guys, you can listen to the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including CastBox, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and most recently, Amazon Music. Also, if you haven't had a chance, make sure to head on over and check out the Sassanac Files blog. I try to post something on there at least once a week to keep you guys entertained during Droughtlander. Also, if you haven't had a chance, make sure you go over to Facebook and Instagram and like and follow on those two platforms for the latest and greatest Sassanac Files news. And with that out of the way, let's talk about 203 Useful Occupations and Deceptions. This episode was written by Anne Kenny, and the episode title was actually taken from two relevant chapters of Dragonfly and Amber. Useful Occupations is one chapter, and Deceptions is the other. So I thought it was super clever that they threw those titles together and made an episode out of it. It was a nice little nod to us readers, and I was like, ah, (laughs) I see what you did there. Yes, really love the title of this one. And more importantly, I love the storyline of this episode. It was a real mover and shaker episode. There's a lot of plot going on, but there's also some character stuff in there and some espionage, a little like mystery going on. It was very clever, and I really did like this episode. I've got five talking points today, and the first one, I just want to get it out of the way, is the Mary Blackjack Frank situation. So, at the end of the last episode, not in Scotland anymore, we found out that Blackjack Randall is not dead, but very much alive, and that is something that is sitting on Claire's conscience and is at the forefront of her mind throughout this episode. Which, how could it not be, right? Because Blackjack took her and Jamie's life and completely turned it upside down, and she's had this measure of peace that she wasn't going to have to deal with any more repercussions of Blackjack Randall beyond what they were already dealing with. But all of a sudden, it turns out he's alive, And so she's known that. It's probably been a couple of weeks at this point, at least. And then, if you'll remember back to last episode, when she met Mary Hawkins for the first time, and she was like, Mary Hawkins, I feel like I've heard that name before, but she couldn't quite put her finger on it. Well, we find out how she knew Mary Hawkins' name in this episode. So it starts out with this little... um gathering for tea with Mary and Louise and Claire. And it starts out as this kind of comical yet sad conversation because Mary is terrified. She's going to have to marry this stranger that she doesn't know. And he's a Frenchman. And oh my God, like she has no clue about sex, how that works, how babies are made, nothing, which is just honestly really sad because today in the 21st century, women go into marriage with their eyes open. Like, you know what to expect. You know how babies are made. You know, like, about 
intercourse and orgasms and all of this stuff. Like, it's just, it's out there. It's information that's widely known. But in the 18th century, part of women being virgins was women had no clue how things worked, right? They went into marriage very naive. On their wedding night, they had no idea what to expect. And so Mary's getting all of this information from her maid. And she's like, well, this must be something that Frenchmen do. Like, this sounds like this horrible ordeal. And Englishmen wouldn't do that. They're civilized, you know? And even Scots is what she's telling Claire. And Louise is just having a stroke at this point because she's trying so hard not to laugh, but she just can't because obviously the French are well-versed in the pleasures of the flesh. And yeah, poor Mary. Louise makes this little jab because Mary was like, men don't do that where I come from. And Louise is like, where is that? The moon? And Mary's like, Seifert in Sussex. And the light bulb clicks on for Claire. Like, it is an instantaneous, oh, shit. Because she remembers. And we get the flashback of Frank. Oh, we get to see Frank again. Yay. But she gets this flashback of Frank looking at his family Bible. And he's like, well, your darling Frank Randall got his start when Mary Hawkins married Jack Randall. The audience is thinking, what? Like, you can't let this this poor, poor little thing ends up married to Blackjack Randall and they have a baby? Like, that is just so terrible. Like, oh my god. You know, so the audience is just like, just as shocked as Claire because, oh my god, it just can't imagine such a thing. So it's just really awful. And so now Claire realizes this and she's kind of dealing with this whole information overload situation and so she's dealing with this all on her own because Jamie doesn't know that Jack is alive so obviously she can't tell him that oh by the way your mortal enemy is alive and he ends up marrying my poor little mousy friend Mary Hawkins and they end up fathering the child that will be the ancestor of my husband in the future yeah you remember Frank (laughs) I mean, this is just a disaster on the worst level. And Claire's dealing with this all on her own. So she kind of explodes on Murta and snaps at him. And he's like, whoa, like, what the hell? Why are you acting like this? And so she manages to tell him the big part of it, which is that Blackjack's alive. And Murta and Claire both agree that Claire's worst fears are justified that, yeah, if Jamie finds out that Blackjack's alive, he's going to immediately hop on the first ship to Britain and try to kill Blackjack and get himself hung in the process. So they both agree that it's not a good idea for Jamie to know, and that is that. But in the meantime, while all of this is happening, Jamie's off on his own adventure. As much as Claire's dealing with a lot in this episode... Jamie is dealing with a lot as well. The agreement was made between Jamie and Claire that they would do whatever it took to stop Charles Stewart and the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745 from going ahead. Because this takes place in the 18th century, it's a little more complicated than that. So 
All Claire can really do is provide moral support and any information that she has because she's from the future. She can't get her hands dirty and help Jamie in the way that she would like to help. So basically, she's limited to staying home and being there in case he needs her and going to her social outings with her friends and seeing if she can get any information that way. Those are pretty much the only two things that Claire can do. So it's left on Jamie to do the rest of it, which essentially ends up with him never sleeping, spending his nights at Maison Elise with Charlie, and then coming home, changing clothes, going and working at Jared's wine warehouse, and then going to Versailles and spending the afternoon at Versailles with Duvernay playing chess. And this is like a daily ritual. This is the routine. He's not getting very much sleep. He's stressed out. Both of them are having a really hard time adjusting to their new lives, possibly even more than we saw in Not in Scotland anymore. In Not in Scotland anymore, I think it was just really the shock of a new culture, but now we're seeing them settle into it and struggling with their purpose in life now. The first time we really see him doing anything of importance to the plot, he's talking to Duvernay about talking to Prince Charlie. And he says, can you just tell Charlie what you told me about the coffers being empty after the war in Austria and that the king is not willing to fund any new escapades? That's all I need you to tell him. Hopefully that will deter Charlie from going any further with this. They're thinking if they can keep Charlie from getting money, then they can keep the war from happening. Because if you can't buy weapons and you can't keep your army fed and you can't pay your soldiers, you're not getting very far. So they're hoping that this will be the end of it. Jamie invites Duvernay to Madame Elise's for a meeting with Charlie the next day or that night. And when they get there, the bombshell is dropped that Charlie already has a lot of money secured. And he really just needs the King of France to like bridge the gap between the big sum that he already has and what they need to go to war with England. And Jamie's like, what the fuck? Like, what? He's so lost. He thought that Charlie was depending on France to give him the money that he needed. And this is what Claire thought as well. And all of a sudden it comes to light that there are a bunch of English aristocrats that are secretly Jacobites that believe that Charlie's father James is the one that should be on the throne. And they're willing to throw their money behind him and support his cause. This blows Jamie's mind. He has no idea what to do with this. Duvernay's intrigued. He's like, okay, well, if you're, we're not talking about a lot of money, we might be able to figure something out. And Jamie's just sitting there with his wheels turning and Duvernay's like, okay, so what's in it for France? You know, if we give you this money, what are you giving us in return? And Charlie's like, well, if we win the war, I will give you an alliance with Britain. And Duvernay's eyes light up because this is like the icing on top of the cake, right? Like a Franco-British alliance would be fantastic. It's two of the biggest powers in Europe allying themselves with each other and basically 
creating because you have the English Channel, right, which runs between France and Britain. Like that's a huge trade lane. So if that is completely open and Britain and France are on the same side, this changes the political game in Europe, period. So this definitely intrigues Duvernay and he knows it's going to intrigue Louis. So he's going to take this to Louis. They're all celebrating and Jamie's just dying a little bit inside. He's like, seriously, I've spent the past how many weeks killing myself and all of a sudden this is happening because I arranged a meeting between Charlie and Duvernay thinking that he knew what was going to be the result of this meeting. And it turns out that Charlie's keeping things from him. Charlie's not being completely honest with Jamie. And this is throwing a really big wrench in the works. Jamie comes home hoping to find Claire, but Claire's not there because Claire's job has been to basically be at the house in case Jamie needs her. The only exception being if she has a social function to go to. Well, she was supposed to have tea with Louise, but after talking to Master Raymond, she decided against that. Because whenever she went to Master Raymond for the contraceptive for Suzette, Master Raymond makes the comment that, oh, well, you're an unusual woman for getting your maid contraceptives. Usually it's the other way around so that the mistress can maintain the facade of being faithful to her husband You know, and Claire's like, well, I'm an unusual woman. And then she's like, well, I used to be. And you can see how much it's eating at Claire. She feels useless. She's used to, like, being a person of action and getting her hands dirty and, you know, helping. She wants to help Jamie, but she doesn't know how. And so she's just sitting around feeling useless, planning dinner parties and having tea. And she's become quite conventional, which she hates. She hates being conventional. She likes being unusual and being herself. And she feels like she's not anymore. So Master Raymond makes the suggestion, well, I know you have medical skills and Le Hôpital des Anges is always looking for people to help them. And she thinks this is a fantastic idea. And I think it's a good idea, honestly. Like... Nobody wants to sit around the house and do nothing and feel useless. If COVID has taught us anything, it has taught us this. Like, you can only sit around and do nothing for so long before you're like, God, I need a life. (laughs) So yeah, she decides she's going to go to the hospital and see if she can lend her help. So she does. And she meets one of the new characters of the episode, which is Mother Hildegard. She's the matron of the hospital, and the hospital is run by an order of nuns. So they basically help the poor and the sick. The people that can't afford a doctor go to this charity hospital for help. People of all different skill sets donate their time to the service of helping the poor and the needy, which is a great purpose. And Claire's like, yes, this is definitely for me from day one. And she knows she has the skill set to help because she's from the 20th century. She automatically has knowledge that would be useful in this setting. And she's looking for ways to apply that. So she automatically catches the attention of Mother Hildegard. And she's like, oh, you know, Sister Angelique, give her something useful to do. And so they put her to emptying chamber pots. Which is just the grunt work, you know, testing her to see 
if she's really there for the right reasons or if she's just there to, you know, say that she was there and she helped. So Mother Hildegard's watching her and she sees her put the tip of her finger in this woman's urine sample and taste it, which, first of all, is the single most disgusting thing ever. Like, I can't imagine. Like, I get the purpose behind it. But seriously, you just tasted somebody's pee voluntarily. Like, gross. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) but when Mother Hildegard witnesses Claire doing this, she's like, okay, well, this this lady might know what she's doing. And so she asks Claire, do you know what's making her sick? And Claire automatically knows, but she wants to verify. So she asks the woman a couple of questions and immediately comes to the conclusion that she's got diabetes, which back in the 18th century was known as sugar sickness. Basically, with diabetes, what happens is that the sugar in your body that builds up when you consume food doesn't have anywhere to go because your pancreas isn't functioning and producing insulin to break down the sugar in your body. So your body just basically rots from the inside out. And it was incurable in the 18th centuries until the invention of artificial insulin. So it wasn't curable. And she answers Mother Hildegard and she's like, no, she probably, she won't last very much longer. And Mother Hildegard's, yeah, that's what our expert says. But I've never met a woman that knew the science of urinoscopy. And so she's kind of got Mother Hildegard intrigued at this point, and she gains a little bit more responsibility. So Claire's feeling like on cloud nine, she finally feels like she's useful and she can help people. And then she goes home all excited, ready to tell Jamie all about her day. And (laughs) Jamie just kind of shits on her happy day. And I get both sides of this argument. Completely, 100%. Because I was watching this episode and I was like, okay, whose side would I take? If I were standing in the room and they both looked at me wanting backup, whose side would I take? And I really couldn't decide. Like, I just had so much empathy for both of them. They're just struggling with so much. And Jamie is dealing with all the political stuff and all he wants is Claire to bounce things off of and help find a solution because he can't tell everything to Myrta. And Claire can't tell everything to Myrta. The only people that they can be completely honest with are each other. And so when the lines of communication break down between the two of them, they're really isolated from anyone else. And so you have this huge amount of stress on both of these individuals, and you've taken away all lines of communication with basically everyone else close in their lives. And all of a sudden, you've got two very strong-willed and smart people, but they're at their breaking point because they just can't handle it anymore. So Jamie waited and waited and waited for Claire because he needed to talk to her. And he thought that she was out doing something like being at tea with Louise or, you know, something that they had agreed that she would do. And when she comes back and he finds out that she's been at the hospital all day, that doesn't make Jamie very happy for a few reasons. One, because she's pregnant and she's exposed herself 
to potentially all kinds of disease and illness that could affect the well-being of both her and their child. So that gets him going. Second of all, he's been waiting on her for hours with no idea where she was at or when she would be back. So he's irritated about that. And three, she's doing something that makes her happy. And Jamie is not, he's actually pretty miserable. Um, Between his PTSD with Blackjack and the stress that he's dealing with, with the whole Bonnie Prince Charlie situation and his lack of sleep, like he's had a rough go of it. And to find out that Claire has been, in his opinion, out gallivanting and just doing what makes her feel good without any regard for him and how he's feeling and what's going on with him. Yeah, he's pretty irritated. And I can totally see why, because 90% of why he's stressed out and angry is because of this agreement that he and Claire made to try to stop the rebellion. And the agreement was that they were going to work together. And all of a sudden, Claire's off doing whatever she wants with whoever she wants and left Jamie to deal with it all. So I can totally see why he's frustrated. And then you see Claire, who it is kind of selfish of Jamie to just expect Claire to sit around and just wait for him to come home so that they can talk about how his day was. It's a very 18th century idea for the man to go off to work and the woman to sit there and wait for him to come home. So, yes, it's selfish on Jamie's part to expect that of Claire. It's like she said, she's like, yeah, but it makes me feel good and it gives my day meaning. And he has this comeback, it's like, but when do I get to feel good? When does my day get to have meaning? Like, I'm doing all of this. I am flattering a man to undermine him and get his secrets. Like, that's my entire life right now. And all I ask is that you're here to help me when I need it. Because this whole damn thing was your idea. And instead, she's off doing what makes her feel good. So I can totally understand the frustration on both sides of things. That and Claire was so sure that Jamie was going to be happy that she found something to give her life meaning again. And he just wasn't. So there's that disappointment for Claire as well. I thought it was so great that in an interview, I can't remember what interview it was, but I think it was one of the press events leading up to season two. Sam and Katrina said that season one was about the budding romance between Jamie and Claire and them getting married and kind of going through the newlywed phase. And then in season two, it was more about them staying married and building their relationship and building a solid marriage. And you really do see that, and especially in these first few episodes, because you see them butt heads. They're both very strong-willed individuals, and all of a sudden they've got opposing ideas of what the other should be doing. And I think it's 100% because of the time period that Claire's from versus the time period that Jamie's from. But you really do see that they're learning how to compromise and deal with each other. And it's really interesting to watch that. So I really get a kick out of it. We're kind of just at a point this entire episode where we're like, come on, guys, like, you know, get over your differences and make up. Like, let's do this. So 
there's the whole Jamie and Claire argument. And then they kind of, and this happens in the middle of the episode. And then they kind of just brood and stomp around and don't talk to each other for a lot of the next half of the episode. We meet Fergus. Fergus is a very important character to the rest of the Outlander series, and he emerges in this episode. He's such a cute little guy. He's such a smartass and so quick with his hands, you know? He even stole Sonny, who Jamie was, like, convinced was gone forever, and it turns out Fergus had him. But yeah, he's just this little French orphan who's been living in a brothel his entire life because his mom was a prostitute who gave birth to him at the brothel, but then nobody really knows what happened to his mom. So he's just been under the care of Madame Elise for his entire life until Jamie makes the deal with him and says, I want to hire you and in exchange, I'll give you a place to live and I'll give you food. This is the beginning of this beautiful relationship that Fergus develops with Jamie and Claire, and he really becomes their adoptive son. And it's really cool to watch. This is the beginning of the story-long idea of family is who you make it to be. It's not necessarily a blood relationship. It's an emotional relationship. You can have adoptive parents just as much as you can have biological parents and vice versa with kids. So it's a really beautiful idea that this series attempts to dissect. And I really, I valued what Diana included in that because Jamie never really got to be a father. So to see that he kind of makes his own family, it's just, it's really good to watch. So Jamie and Claire are brooding for most of the episode, but they eventually make up just as all good couples do. And... It turns out that when Fergus is stealing letters, they get this one package to Prince Charlie that's really sheet music, but there's something off about it because the music is in German, but it's sent from England to France. So why is that? They're not really sure what's off about it. And so Jamie's telling Myrta, well, you know... Maybe tomorrow you could look around and see if there's anybody that could potentially help us out and take a look at it and see what's up with it. And Myrta's like, well, I know somebody who could help us, but I don't think you're going to like it. <laughs> and it turns out that the person that can help them is Mother Hildegard, the nun that oversees the hospital that Claire is volunteering at. And so he takes the music to the hospital the next day and Claire is just shocked when Jamie shows up. I mean, it's the last place that Claire ever expected to see Jamie because like, seriously, you know, we just argued about how you don't want me to work here. Why are you here? And he's like, oh, I need help. Musically speaking. <laughs> so Mother Hildegard does her best to help them. She wants assurance initially that you know, can you assure me that what you're doing is neither is not dangerous or illegal? And he, he kind of is just like, ugh. And Claire comes up and says, trust me, if my husband is asking for help, it's for a good reason. And kind of backs him up, which bolsters Jamie a little bit, because I think he's felt like he was alone for a lot of it, like that 
Claire wasn't there for him like she promised to be. And this is kind of her saying, no, I'm here for you and I will help you get what you need in this. And so this is kind of them starting to bridge the gap. And I love the little look. She gets all excited about the Goldberg variations from Johann Sebastian Bach, which is a very famous composer. He wasn't very well known at his time, but his genius was appreciated later in life, like posthumously. And so Claire 100% knows who he is, but Mother Hildegard is just shocked. She's like, you know who he is? And Claire, you know, gets pretty giddy because Mother Hildegard's showing her the Goldberg variations, which ends up being one of his most famous pieces. And Jamie just looks at her and gives her this little look. Like he's so happy that she's fascinated. He's seeing something that nobody else would notice in that she knows like this is something that will be important in the future so he just gives her this little look like you're so adorable (laughs) and um they go on to find out that yeah there really is something musically funny with this piece and it's in the fact that there are five key changes in this one piece and so what they end up figuring out when they decode it is that This note is not only verification that money has been secured from the English aristocracy for Prince Charlie, but it's 40,000 pounds and it's the Duke of Sandringham that is collecting this money and giving it to Charlie. So Jamie and Claire are both realizing the same thing. Jamie puts it as hedging his bets for and against a Stuart restoration. And Claire puts it as playing both sides against the middle. Both saying the same thing, that Sandringham is a two-faced son of a bitch. (laughs) So they're celebrating, and Jamie goes to get some whiskey, and Myrta approaches her, and he's like, okay, well, no matter what we decided earlier, throw it all out the window because if Sandringham is in the picture, Jamie's going to find out one way or another that Blackjack is alive. And it's better that you tell him now than for him to find out from some other source. And worse yet, if he finds out from another source that you knew and didn't tell him. So you have to tell him now. She has the opportunity to tell him. And she freezes because she just sees how happy he is for finally figuring this whole thing out. And he struggled with it for so long and it's been such a source of stress. And finally, he's getting this wave of euphoria. He's had success. He's figured it out. They can move on to the next step, you know? She really doesn't want to ruin that. And I really do. I feel like part of it is that she doesn't want to ruin it. And part of it is that she has a nagging feeling of what's going to happen when he finds out that Blackjack's alive. I think it's all of that. But really, I think the biggest part of it is that, you know, she doesn't want to ruin his high like he ruined hers. But I'm also like with the look on Claire's face and she even goes to tell him, like interrupt him. And he's like, what is it? And then she's just like, oh, well, I just love seeing you so happy. And I'm like, come on, Jamie. Like, really? Do you really believe that? (laughs) Because, I mean, Claire's face, it's just like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, there's no freaking way. 
So yeah, another problem for another day, I suppose, in the world of Outlander. And we will confront that next week. I think that about wraps up the actual episode analysis. I wanted to take a moment to talk about performance of the episode. And I had a really hard time deciding on this one because I felt like everybody did a really good job. It was it was full of strong performances. But I think that Sam and Katrina both did an awesome job with their respective storylines and creating identifiable sides to each story so that when that argument occurred in the middle of the episode, like I said, you couldn't really pick one side or the other because you could see both points. I felt like they did a really good job kind of showing their characters' respective struggles to the audience to build empathy and um, you could kind of get their inner turmoil and their sense of needing to find themselves again. They really both did a good job And so I give them best duo, okay? They get a tie this episode. Primarily because Chelsea can't make up her mind. But hey, I created the podcast, so I get to make up the rules. (laughs) And as far as favorite quote of the episode, I'm taking it back to the scene between Jamie and DuVernay when they're playing chess. I thought that was a really brilliant scene for a lot of reasons. It's a lot of political intrigue and kind of getting the story behind where France is on a political scale and how they're doing with money. And they've just come off of a war, so they don't have a lot of money. There's a lot of information there, but there's also kind of a building of friendship and, you know, clearly they've spent a lot of time together, DuVernay and Jamie. So. They kind of understand each other. But um, I loved the quote, What is politics but chess on a grand scale? I love how it led into the meeting with Prince Charlie at Madame Elise's. And Duvernay's like, oh, but my wife. And Jamie's like, you don't need to tell her. All you need to tell her is that you're out with me playing chess. (laughs) So I love how that scene came full circle. We're just viewing politics as a big game of chess. And I guess it makes sense why Jamie's so good at the espionage, because he is good at chess. He's good at thinking three moves ahead and manipulating people to lean the way that he wants them to lean or go in the direction he wants them to go. He's very good at it. I'm reading The Scottish Prisoner right now, and there's a scene in there where a remark is made about how he was always one of the best Jacobite agents in France. And that's coming from someone who's dealt with a lot of espionage over the years. So uh, it's not just us seeing it from a reader's perspective. He really is good at what he's doing, even though he's not necessarily enjoying it. He is a very good spy and he's very good at playing both sides against the middle, as Claire would put it. So That is my quote of the episode, and I think that about wraps everything up for this episode. I did want to mention to you guys that I was searching social media, as I so often do in the afternoons, and ran into a post by John Bell. I'm sure if you follow any sort of social media, you have seen it already, But he is starting prep for season six. He started his workout regimen to get back in shape for Outlander. So 
that means that it is coming soon, guys. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. So it's very exciting. I'm excited. And make sure to follow the Sassnack Files on Instagram. The cast is very active on there, and I'm trying to share anything interesting that I see on their stories or their social media so that you guys can see it as well. Alrighty, um, if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any previous episodes of the Sassanac Files, make sure to shoot an email to the Files at gmail.com or leave questions or comments in the thread of whatever episode you are asking about. And if it's something that I think everybody would find useful or informative, I will include it on the next episode of the Sassanac Files. Next week, we will be talking 204 La Dame Blanche, which is also kind of intriguing as an episode. The beginning of that episode in particular is is a couple of my favorite scenes from the first half of season two. So uh, excited to talk about that one. And until next time, you guys stay safe out there. I will chat at you later. Have a good one.